Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers to hear their stories what inspires their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. My guest today, Anthony Weiner, is the subject of a documentary simply titled Weiner that opens in theaters later this month. The film covers the former congressman's 2013 bid for New York City mayor, which ultimately ends in his defeat amid a sexting scandal. This was Weiner's second time facing this issue, the first resulted in his resignation from Congress. But in spite of his problems, Wiener does emerge in the film as an effective campaigner and one who was not without his supporters. It's easy to see why he's a natural. He's charismatic and quick on his feet. If you had won the election, <laughs> uh, the last election you uh, ran for, how do you think things would be different right now in the city? I've always had this theory about mayors in New York City that we go from personality like mayors, you know, the Koch's, the Giuliani's, and then we like to kind of take a deep breath afterwards and have more of a calmer, technical maybe guy. And I had the theory that we were due after Bloomberg for more personality, kind of someone who really enjoyed it, someone who really liked engaging in it, someone mixing it up a little bit more. And de Blasio hasn't quite been that. And I think there's kind of an appetite a little bit for a different kind of personality. I would obviously be a different type of mayor than he. I mean, a little more peripatetic, a little bit more like doing something, I got a thousand ideas, little ideas, big ideas that I would have liked been doing every single day, less kind of like this thematic thing that he's got going about being a progressive mayor. All that being said, you know, the, it's not as hard as a job as it used to be. You know, money's poor. Why? Well, so much of being a mayor is defined in, in the past has been defined as these two big things. One is the budget's always been very tough, very dependent on Washington, very dependent on Albany. 
The the second thing is that you get buffeted, used to get buffeted by the tabloid wars constantly in New York City. Like, you know, chewing up mayors was what the tabloids used to do. And they're just not what they used to be. Like, you don't have the day-to-day headwind being a politician in New York City that you would have in the past. And then the third thing is just that progressively over the course of time, government at all levels has gotten more competent. It's less driven by just, you know, guys who knew guys who knew guys and 350,000 employees. It's not saying that every one of them is good, but our ways of spotting and weeding out the ones who aren't that good. I mean, you know, a a day-to-day sanitation man works pretty hard, knows his job pretty well. Technology is a good way of keeping up with him. So those types of things have made the city less breakable than it used to be. So you don't think the police is a kind of a closed shop and it's you got to know somebody to get a job in the well, police department. Well, l- less so than maybe it used to be. What I will say is this, is that the size of the police department being bigger, it's bigger than the FBI. It's one, it's one of the biggest... Where are they at now? 31, It's 32? like 34, 35,000 people. I mean, they're not all out in the street at the same time, but then they're arguably one of the larger paramilitary forces in the world. And they're incredibly efficient, do a good job. But invariably, every so often, you're going to have problems within any agency that large. But, you know, very rarely does someone stop a cop on the street and say, I didn't get mugged today. Thank you for that. Like, you basically only see the cops when there's a problem. You know, something's gone wrong. But the recent pressure, in my view, the recent pressure on statistical improvement every day since crime has basically been eliminated in so many people's lives. I mean, it's a completely different city than it was in the 70s when Mm -hmm. I was growing up. I mean, you know, the idea of like, you know, my, I have a four-year-old son, like you, when you were old enough to have a bike, you're old enough to have your bike stolen, basically. You're old enough to be mugged. The idea of wilding yeah. in Central Park <laughs> yeah. is a, in the past. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's it just even little things. Like if you had nothing to do when you wanted to get mugged, you got on the L train. You know, now you get mm-hmm. on the L train and it's all these hipsters and yeah, everything else. And it's, right. uh, it's just a much, much safer, better city. And so I mean, I, we, we're not used to it. We're not accustomed as culturally to say things are better, but things are amazing. Right now, now, one thing I wanted people to understand, I mean, you, you said that the, the budget was at the mercy of Albany and of Washington. And the city is still, it's safe to say, in receivership from the economic crisis of years ago. They don't really don't handle their own finances without some rubber stamp from Albany, correct? Well, look, the city of New York is a creation, a constitutional creation of the state legislature and of the of the state constitution. As such, it's not it's still the mayor of New York City is a fairly powerful mayorality compared to a lot of other cities. And the city council has a lot of responsibility. And when you say it's a creation, what do you mean? Meaning the five counties have a special Right, meaning literally the political subdivision of the city of New York was a creation of law, was a creation of of, of the of the state constitution. And as such, you're at the whim. And all throughout state law, you'll see things like cities of excess of a million people must do A, B, or C. And you do have a state legislature that's still— So where does the city's money come from? I mean, for for people who don't understand— the political process in as much detail as you do, they, they nonetheless recall that basic kind of primer where federal dollars come largely from income tax and state from sales tax and municipal dollars from property tax. Is that still true in New York City, that well, the problems of money comes from here, property tax? Here's, here's where the city – less so than most cities. Like, for example, our education budget is not tied to property taxes as it is in Long Island, a lot of suburbs and a lot of cities around the country because we have two giant engines of revenue. One is the financial sector, which, you know, when you hear about people getting these obscene bonuses, we're getting a piece of the action on those bonuses. Although the day-to-day transaction type of things don't create revenue for the city, but all the deals, the big deals, we're getting a little piece of that. And the second thing is real estate, which has, I mean, it's at mind-bogglingly high levels. I mean, you you can literally buy a $40 million apartment in sure. New York City. And it's... Yeah. Um, 
those two revenue streams are very are very strong. Now, we do have a Byzantine property tax assessment system, which has apartments being taxed at a certain level, co-ops being taxed at a certain, certain level. If Who's to blame for that? It's it, it's another very complicated thing. What it it is? It's kind of like one of these things. You know, a camel is a horse designed by committee. It's a little right. bit like over the course of time, different constituencies have put their finger on the scale and now created this weird system. So you're born in Brooklyn. Yeah, and you went to Plattsburgh, way up there in the boondocks. That's there by right. The it's, it's a province of Canada. It, virtually, where you, it where, is. You, where you went to it school. It is. Up there. I, I, I need it to be close enough that a thirty-minute car ride can get me six and a half percent alcohol beer. That was basically the criteria. When my dad and I were talking, like, where, where do you want to go to school, son? It's you know, he's like, you can what go. What did he do? He's just a neighborhood lawyer guy. My mom was a school teacher, but you know, like they basically said, I wasn't that good a student. They said you can go anywhere you want. It's a SUNY, State University of New York, or a CUNY school, anywhere you want. So I just I kind of look what's the furthest one away that I can go play hockey every day. And who was the tougher one, your mother or your father? Who are you like? I'm probably more like my dad in that I'm fucked up in the same way he is. But you know, it's uh, probably my dad had the greatest kind of influence on the path I took in life for good reasons and bad reasons that, you know, he was the... He inspired uh, you to go into politics and the no, public service? No, not in that way. No, but he would be the one, like, arguing all the time and, like, hey, to defend your positions and that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's funny. You, know, you actually had... You, uh, you were there a little bit at the birth of my career in a strange way. Let's see if you can figure it out. It has to do with Chuck Schumer? No. With what? Uh, Glengarry Glenn Ross. Okay. You, you guys well, were, what a leap. You guys were filming while I was running for city council for the first time. You guys were filming, I guess externals, I don't know what you guys call them, by the Sheepshead Bay subway stop. And I don't know why. I think the outsides of the thing. And so crowds would form. Like people would line, I'm like, what's going on? This is Sheepshead Bay. Like we're not used to it. And someone say, get some signs, get some signs. Totally. I'm like working the lines. I, I'm like a Jewish version of that guy. Who's in this movie? Alec yeah. Baldwin. I'm a Jewish version of that guy. I'm the Jewish Al Pacino. Yeah, because, you know, when you're running for city council, like a gathering of like 20 people is a, wow, I hit the jackpot here. <laughs> and then I'm thinking, like, well, I should probably make an issue of all this fucking double parking these guys are doing, these Hollywood guys. But, uh, but yeah, that was it. Uh, that you was like my... politics, don't you? You did. No, no, I totally do. I, I totally do. In the and, movie, and we're going to get to the movie. In the movie, you're waving that banner. You're yeah, waving yeah. that. And you look like a kid. You're so happy. Yeah, yeah. And these people are all jumping up and down, and they love well, you. There's you know, a part here, of you you loved retail politics. No, I love, I love that stuff. I, I don't know who you were talking to. Um, maybe oh, It might have been Jerry Seinfeld, where he's like, oh, that guy just loves power. It's clear he does have power. People don't understand that, you know, to go into, poli- to go into any profession— and to really enjoy, like to love it, and like to, a lot of a lot of times you're doing, you're enjoying the 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 constituent parts of a job, like being in Washington and sitting there and being in committee hearings and passing laws. That gratifies it. That that obviously scratches an itch. You want to make the world better, but there's an element of that that is really not completely on the level because you're not really passing laws all that often. You're usually having hearings of things that you've heard before, et cetera. But when you're at home and you're, you know, solving the problem from someone because they came in and they can't figure out, you know, my, my, my husband, this actually happened. My husband dropped his dentures down the sewer. We don't know who to call to get them back. <laughs> and you're like trying to figure out, well, if it got washed out, I got to call yeah. this guy. What block do you want? Like, what switch do you throw so this guy's dentures don't get washed away, whatever it is. You've got oh to kind of like, you, you are, you're either good at that or you're not, like unpacking how you to do, want to do it. Or not. And you have to like it, like... I have run against in my day people who no doubt would be excellent representatives in the classic sense, going there and casting the right vote and probably giving a good speech or writing a good book. 
But they clearly didn't like the other stuff. And the other stuff is not inconsequential. And, and I don't, you know, anyone who makes it, say, to Congress or to be a mayor of a city, they've got to like that. You cannot fake that stuff. And I legitimately, that's the only part of the job I really miss is, the, is that kind of stuff. You were in Congress. How long were you in the Congress? I was in, I was in the city council for seven years. I was in Congress, I guess, 13 years. Once, okay, yeah, you were in Congress for 13 yeah. years. What was the shortest thing you did in the city council? No, that you the were for seven six years. years. Seven, so, I mean, like, basically, the, the TikTok for me is, I, I mean, I never had, you know, I, I have no marketable skills because I never had a real job. I, out of college, I up at Plattsburgh, I wrote my congressman, who I had to look up in one of these guidebooks in the library, who my congressman was, sent Chuck Schumer a letter, spelled his name wrong. Can I come and volunteer and like basically do an internship? They're, they're like- You were there for six or seven years. Well, what happened was I was an intern, thank goodness, for six, seven years. But I basically, you know, like Dan Quayle, I failed upwards, you know, like they said- You hey, worked with Chuck for a while. Yeah, you're pretty good at opening mail. It was about six years. What did you, know? you learn from Chuck? Just about everything that I mean, he. If you can only have one political kind of mentor, kind of guy, you know, Go someone ahead and say it, rabbi. Someone, yeah, rabbi, exactly. Eskimo. Someone who, you know, when I started working for Chuck, I was six three, had blonde hair and a little nose. I kind of morphed into this Semitic, <laughs> electable version of myself. But uh, you know, like because he did the inside game and the outside game about as skillfully as anyone does. Um, so then I just kind of like I did a few years in Washington in the eighties, and then when I decided I wanted to try it myself. I had this brilliant idea. I was going to move to Florida, where they're just they were like adding districts left and right because so much population was being. And I figured a Jewish guy from Brooklyn, I'll fit in fine down there. And Chuck would have welcomed you. Uh, they, yeah, would have been. They I would have named I the retirement center. I would have fit in great. You know, I would obviously. You know, I would have to lose the Anthony somehow. But um, and Chuck said, "No, you should come back and work in my district What's office." What's your middle name? David. Okay. David Weiner. Yeah. I mean, totally. The a, David Weiner Library. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vote for, even though vote for, even though vote for a Weiner, it just it works no, no. so perfectly. David Weiner. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks. I'll, that that might have been the problem. Must be, <laughs> that we, was we, probably we, it. I wish I spoke to you twenty years free, ago. Buddy. Thank you, buddy. Free. Thanks. Uh, so yeah, so I basically came back, ran for the city council, won a six-way race by a couple hundred votes, and uh, there what you was go. that like? Your years in the city council? Um, it was great. I mean, look, I was a kid. I was elected at the time. I mean, now I think people have gotten elected. I was like 27, got elected and um, had apprentice for the job. I you know, ran against all the county organizations and county machines and everything else and still won. And so I, when I got in, I didn't really owe anyone all that much so I can kind of do really what I wanted. And, and what was something you did that was memorable to you? Like, what, what, What's something that defined your period well, in the city the council? Well, the thing, I mean, I had a signature issue that kind of was visited on me that so – since I wasn't kind of an insider guy, I didn't have great committee picks. And so I was interested in the idea that people in public housing, part of the reason they have such crummy lot in life is that their representation is never very good because who the heck, you know, they're not a lot, they're not, not heavily voting, they're overly poor, a lot of headaches. So I asked them to create for me a subcommittee on public housing. And by as fortune or misfortune would have it, in the mid-90s, there started to be this circumstance where there were these terrible fires in the hallways of the public housing developments, and no one knew what was going on. And I had a mole in the fire department who kept sending me documents that showed that a buddy of Rudy Giuliani had started a paint company because he can make money selling it to the Giuliani administration, and the paint was horrible and flammable. And that people would be in the hallways and smoke in the, in the lobbies in the hallways and it was creating these terrible fires and people were dying. And because I was getting all of these in, these documents, 
I knew what was going on and was able to stop it, but not not until I basically had this head-on war with the Giuliani administration. Um, what was eventually done about that? We basically, eventually, the Giuliani administration fessed up and they- Put the guy out of business? Put the guy out of business and they repainted everything like that, which was my original thing was you got to repaint all this stuff. Like it's not enough just to like do a test. City housing. City public housing, you know, and um, it's like a cousin of Giuliani or something like that. How did Giuliani react? Not very well. A funny story. So finally, the New York Times does a story about it because another one of these stairwell fires and I get another document- and the fire commissioner and now the mayor himself both say they have no way of knowing this was a problem. And I had a document that was directed to the fire commissioner, the stamp received by his office. So I hold a press conference. It was around the time of Christmas. Cold day. I'm at the bottom of the steps of City Hall, which is where city councilmen do their press conferences. And I'm releasing this document. I'm standing in front of the cameras. And I'm like, and I'm here to deliver this, this document to the mayor who says that they had no idea of knowing, showing that they indeed did. And a cameraman, and remember, my back is to City Hall. My cameraman says, well, you should give it directly to the mayor. I said, that's why I'm here. He says, no, directly to him. He's right there. So the mayor had walked up the steps with his son, Andrew, by the hand. It was right before Christmas. It was a cold day. It was like a Sunday or something like that. And the New York Times captured this picture of me at the bottom of the stairs and him at the top, me holding this letter and him like Zeus at the top of the stairs, like glaring at me down. The, the, the footnote of that story is he became convinced that someone in his office had given me his schedule to know exactly when he was going to be walking up with his son and that, one, I had violated the whatever code, or don't, don't involve the families, you know, whatever right. it is. And he began an inquisition within his shop. How did Wiener get my schedule? When it's just weird fluke of scheduling that I happened to be standing there on a Sunday because I had this this. Happened. It was one of the, I mean, that, that was- Did you have ongoing tension with him after that? Oh, well, I had been on, Giuliani famously kept a list, you know, one of these Nixonian kind of shit lists, and I had been on that early on, and, and it would probably just made it worse. But yeah, he sends someone out to say that uh, the mayor wants to see you, which was then still a big deal. I mean, I was, I was just a councilman. I mean, I would run into the mayor, but to be calling, and I'm, well, what's going to happen? I mean, did you want to apologize? Did you want to take this letter? Did you want to say, here's what we're doing about it? Or did he just want to yell at me, whatever it was? And so I'm waiting outside uh, for him to summon me in. About 30 minutes go by, and the same guy, the same staffer that had said, wait, the, the mayor wants to see you, came out and said he, changed, he doesn't want to see you. You can go. And apparently he— Was it a game he was playing? I don't think it was that. I think that he was so livid at this that just wanted to tear my head off. And someone talked about it. And him. someone basically said, yeah, and he changed his focus. Instead, I want to find out how the hell he knew my, my schedule. But that's all, that's all secondary. That, that what it, wound, it was the first time I kind of had a real issue in the city. I was really doing good things. Right. It was not kind of like this weird fabricated thing because it really was a dangerous situation. Right. Um, and then the following year, I think I ran, Chuck, Chuck announces he's running for Senate against Amato. So then I announced that I'm going to run and... I didn't have much of a chance of winning. It was like three men versus one woman, three guys from Brooklyn, one woman from Queens. And again, just by you know dint of kind of really just a good strategy, just running and had knocking on a lot, a lot of doors, uh, won by a couple hundred votes. Now, you go to Washington and you're there for six terms. And again, what's what's a highlight? I mean, it's just tough to distill it down 12 years into, you know, but give us one or two highlights of what the kind of work you were doing. Well, I mean, you've got to separate. You, you were representing Chuck's district. I was representing Chuck's district. So I'm representing a, 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 a 
Democratic district in New York City, but not as liberal as you might imagine. For example, Obama in 2008 only got 55% in my district. You know, it's, it's a, it was a As a matter of fact, when I had my scandal and I left, the Repub- a Republican took it for a, for a brief right. cup of coffee, and, and then they redrew it again. So it was a pretty conservative district, and I kind of developed a rhythm after a while of prosecuting it by kind of like the old adage, there's nothing in the middle of the road but dead possums and yellow, ro- yellow lines. Like, I'm going to really kind of lean into being being who I am and kind of being progressive on some stuff, being hawkish on Israel, kind of being true to who I was. And, and rather than trying to hew this middle line, kind of leaning into stuff. But the real difference in Washington was that when you were in the majority, you're getting stuff done. And when you're in the minority, you weren't. I mean, it's the bottom line. And I was in the minority most of the time. A couple of Which years. Which is why you're yelling at the top of your lungs at that podium <laughs> exactly. on YouTube every exactly. time I, I bring you up I'm on not, YouTube. Dude, I wasn't ye- – I yelled once. And even in the midst of my most ferocious yelling, I observed regular order. I called him a gentleman. I'm not criticizing. No, I'm just, I'm just saying that I'm, yelling, I'm observing. Uh, there's a little bit of – Oh, okay, yelling. You, you were very wound up. There was one time I was yelling. And the other time, I was just being a New Yorker, brother. That's the way we, that's the way we roll. We, I, we talk like that. You brought the New York to <laughs> D.C. But so I, I mean, it is – I mean, what happened in Washington since the time I was there in the 80s as a staffer to when I got elected, there used to be a core of, let's say, a quarter of the place that you do – you would like to hang out with, like you would like to have arguments with, Democrat and Republican, like that took the time to learn stuff, had a philosophical view on it kind of wanted outcomes, like they wanted to do stuff. Like if you sat across the table and says, what do you want? Well, what do you want? And you can kind of, then it becomes Get a little somewhere. bit. somewhere. Then yeah. it's a problem-solving thing that actually is not, it's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Like now, and that has given way, and maybe I contributed to it, has given way to a different type, which is guys, you. guys that are basically like, this ain't going to happen. It's not on the level. We basically are just going to fight about this. So let's be really skillful at the Christians and Lions element of the show of like where we go out and we fight over stuff. And those types of people are now the center of gravity in Washington. And so notwithstanding the fact that you might be one of those people and you're good at it, it kind of is a shitty way to kind of like, you know, go through like when you can sit in the Judiciary Committee and you can see an an, an issue of gun control or of of abortion rights or something like that. And you're basically pressing play. You know, you might be good at it, but you're just pressing play on your speech that you gave and you're, you understand how to triangulate. You understand what the other guy is going to say. So the part of it that's frustrating is that you're not passing laws. So like now why are you there? You're there to do this show. And that's okay for 30 minutes a week maybe, but it's not there to be there all week doing it. And then my other problem was I was in a weird space in that I was kind of young – like, you know, there it's still an older place and, you know, you know, going out with, you know, having a bunch of drinks and just hanging out with fat cigars. Like, they didn't do anything for mm-hmm. me. And, and I don't think that people are venal and I don't think that they're not decent people. And you don't get Washington unless you're being elected by people and you've got something on the ball. It wasn't the kind of crowd that you wanted to spend days and days and days on end with. And that's really all you're doing now is sitting around stewing in your juices and, you know, waiting for the next you know, vote, imp- vote to impeach or vote to overturn some law that you care so about. So in a career in which someone's got to leave a position for that position to become opened up, I mean, did you – it gets to be 2011 and you decide, is mayor something you'd thought about before? Well, was 2005, that, that I ran. Right. And I had a, an amazing experience. You know, I had zero expectations of me, nothing, you know, 3 percent of the polls. I didn't have to give up my seat to run. Why did you run? I ran because it's the job I – that's the that's job. That's the job you wanted. That's the job I was – 
you know, that's the job I was meant to do. Like, I like problem solving. I like being the the kind of the spokesman of a thing. You want to be in charge. I like the city. Like, I just it's I breathe. Like, I love it. I love the city. I love the, the I love the neighborhoods. I love the, the idea. I I'm a, something of a student of it, and in, in, like I admire mayors, and I liked what what they do, and and I also um, realized that I didn't have a legislative temperament sit there and do three yards in a cloud of dust for five years to work on an immigration bill someday. That's sort of study copyright law and like be the expert on that. I just didn't have that temperament. I just want to get shit done and I wanted to do it quickly. I wanted to do stuff. And when you're the mayor of the city of New York, the stuff you can do with a phone call is a lot. You can solve a lot of people's problems that way. So in 2005, I ran as a, I mean, I don't know how to put it, as about as long a shot as you can get. We're running against, you know, Bloomberg was on the Republican side and I had a borough president of Manhattan, a borough president of the Bronx who had run before a city council speaker, and then me. Um, but it was a great experience. I, I, I made the runoff, surged at the end, did it just right, was relaxed the whole time, doing my thing of doing issues every single day. No one cared. No one was showing up. But I liked doing it. And I just put myself in a position to take advantage when the other guys either made mistakes or took me too lightly. Um, 2009, you were going to run again. 2009 was my moment. And you aborted that when he extended the term limits. Right. That was a the tough What did you think when he extended moment. the term limits? Did that I've never you? been so outraged. That was so jarring to me because it was really, even for someone who's a, a politician for a long time in New York City who understands how things goes, the sheer gall of it, of right. a rich guy buying— um, uh, well, buying uh, it for the third time, actually, because he spent $100 million or more, 90-something million well, on the previous well, two. Well, if you add it all together, it's a quarter of a billion dollars we know of. Right. And then it's all the, the walking around money. They, but that part, having a free-spending guy is one thing, but he basically bought the newspapers to do this, right? I mean, you don't get away—how would you get away with over—just for your listeners who aren't steeped in New York— the voters of the city of New York put term limits in. I'm not a big, big fan of term mm-hmm. limits. Never have been. The voters then again were asked to consider it. A few years later, they again reaffirmed it, says we still want to do it. How was the city council empowered to set it aside? Well— Is that the way the law was written? No. It's—you can—well, it's a good question. I believe, and it was challenged in court, and I believe you can make a pretty good argument that there should be a hierarchy of things. And when the voters vote on something, the only way to undo it is when you do it. We don't do a lot of referendums right. in our city. We just don't right. do it. And so this it's not was, California. The, right. It's very unusual. And so this was an unusual construct. This was one of those rare cases that the city of New York had done something by voter referendum. So the city council said, it's a law like any other. We make laws and pass laws all the time. and We can get out from under it. I think the courts made a mistake in acknowledging that. that. Right. But the courts, generally speaking really do let legislatures do their thing unless they think there's a real important reason to step in. And at any rate, the city council and the mayor, who had repeatedly said he would never support changing term limits, and the city council repeatedly said they would never change it. So they ran, they both campaigned saying they would never do any such thing. It was so foreign. And you can't imagine, it was such an unpopular thing. It was about 75% of the New Yorkers wanted it to stay. 75% of it is so voted to put them in in the first place. And that kind of an undoing of the public will, notwithstanding the substance, which I can, I don't care about term limits. I mean, in this case, it impacted me. I'm not the poster child for what it impacted because I was going to run. But it was so offensive to me, I really could not imagine it would ever happen. Like the very scaffolding of our relation, of citizens' relationship to their government was now being undone, right? Because this, it's one thing to change a law that happens, and even a popular law that happens. 
when you start saying, we're going to put something out to vote for you, the people, and we're going to kind of discard it for our own self-interest. There's a psychic toll there. There's also, there's a Banana Republic sense to it as well. I mean, and this is New York City. This is not like some sleepy town. So my position was, if you want to do this and you believe it's the right thing to do, let people vote again. And I said, I will join you in putting that on the ballot. If that's what people say, then so be it. But um, I had seen what it was like to run against a billionaire, and I had to decide whether I wanted to do it again. And remember something else that actually really complicated the decision for me. Barack Obama had just been elected. There was this notion that finally we in Congress, like all these things I wanted to do that I was telling you earlier, you really don't do. You just sit around and do nothing or you're in the opposition party. You could do like, you know, health care reform. Holy cow. You know, the stimulus, like these things that we were on the verge of doing. Um, so like when I, I think I wrote an op-ed from the New York Times, like explaining why I made the decision I did. It's not often you get a chance to kind of like a lot of people say, well, I want to spend more time with my family. That's why I'm going to do it. Like, I really do want to go back to Washington and get some stuff done. I was no, it was no longer like I didn't have this sense that it was now or never. I was now like leading in all the polls. I thought I could, you know, maybe wait for, for, for some more time. Um, but it was a very painful because I had – that I thought – I uh, was was my moment, and it uh, and it, it, it didn't work out. And I, but I think it's a scar on Bloomberg's legacy that really can't be removed. After the break, Anthony Weiner on the difference between politicians and movie stars when it comes to surviving scandals. Explore the Here's the Thing archives, where Ed Rollins, Republican campaign advisor talks about the Jimmy Carter presidency. Yeah, you know, he was a micromanager. He was an engineer, and he wanted he wanted to manage everything. And the reality is the president isn't a management job. The president is an inspirational job, and he sets a direction. He has four or five big decisions to make every day. If you have an inability to make decisions, then they basically stack up on you. Take a listen at heresthething.org. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh 
refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her. Each in women's petite and plus sizes. And Stafford and Mutual Weave for him. Style and comfort for all. Even big and tall. Plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My guest today is Anthony Weiner. Weiner is a former congressman and has run for New York City mayor twice. He's also the veteran of two major scandals that brought unwanted fame to him and his wife, Huma Abedin, a longtime aide and current vice chair of Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. Weiner says the unrelenting media coverage and painful public interactions led to some very dark days. Yet somehow he managed to pick himself up again. The reason I had the problems that I did was the reason that I was able to survive it. And that some wiring, some emotional wiring that wasn't attached just right made it possible for me to do dumb things and kind of reach out and be connected to strangers and things like that and have conversations over this whatever and not ever, never meet them and be fine with that is might be the same kind of emotional mishwiring that made it possible for me to w- be in this storm and not let it completely debilitate me. You compartmentalize. I don't even know if it's that formal a thing that happens. I just don't think that it's kind of like to some degree the emotional input is not getting in. Like it's not firing, you know, not firing correctly. And so you don't kind of feel it as much. But all that being said, I'm not going to lie to you that I was not reading my clips during this stuff. Mm -hmm. I was not watching Jon Stewart skewer me. I was not in – so – it might have been harder for many people who were around me. Like I remember my friend Harry calling me up while everything was going on and there's 20 TV stations outside my house and this is when the scandal first broke, saying, hey, do you want me to come over and bring you some food or something like that, whatever it is? And it it dawned on me pretty quickly. He wanted to make sure I was going to do something nuts to myself and commit suicide or something like that. It was harder actually for people watching it happen. But he represented one of the 50 different views of my scandal. Like everyone looked at it as a Roysatch test for their own experience, you know. So some people, as many people come up to me in the streets now and say, my God, you were treated terribly. Just come up to me and say, boy, what an idiot you are. Just come up to me and say, you know, why are you out on the street? Why aren't you home, you know, with 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 your with the mm-hmm. with bill of your Mets hat pulled down over your eyes. Mm-hmm. Everyone views this thing. And sometimes, and I would get calls from people who I hadn't spoken to in a while being the most generous friend, and it occurred to me after a while, as grateful as I was for that gesture, that it's probably because something happened in their lives, that they're like, before before, before the grace of God, they're, you know, go I kind of thing. Um, So I don't really, I didn't like view the press as, God, this is like so outrageous what they're doing to me. I'm like, I know their role in my world, I always have. The underlying challenge that I have is I'm a guy named Wiener with pictures out there that that did things hard for people to understand, et cetera, and that and that you can't plow through the tabloid and the talk shows and everything else. So there's just the, you, you're not left with enough oxygen. That how are skillful? You know, I have this conversation with people. I think if anybody could do it, you could. I said to my priest once, I said, 
uh, who passed away, I said to him, you'd say confession now face-to-face. They have what's called reconciliation. No more in the booth with the screen. They come in. And I said, what's that like for you? He says, well, the women come in and say that they've met a guy at work and they're in love and they they have real feelings. And the guy comes in and says he's met a woman at work and he's just fooling around with her and it's just Mm -hmm. sex. And he goes, but he goes, I come from the Thomas Aquinas school where the sins of the flesh are the least of our concerns. He said, I want someone to walk into this reconciliation and say to me, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I have an abundance of pride. (laughs) When someone will say that to me, because now I know we're getting somewhere. Well, I can tell you this. Everyone, you included apparently, think they have the magic words to say. But what complicates all of this is is that I am limited by the idea that I know what I did is is serious in a very narrow sense of the impact that it had on, on my wife and my family and everything else. And so all of that being said, I don't have a lot. Part of, you know, you asked the question, how do I deal with the press today? I don't believe in letting the the culture of shame keep me in a place. You know what I'm saying? That that they may be right. I'm happy to hear you say that. They may be right. I might be an asshole, and I and I definitely. It's not like I don't feel a great deal of regret, and I don't every once in a while I can't say imagine. say fuck. You know that was close. I could have really had this dream thing that I wanted. But now standing here, it's a fairly binary choice. I have. I either go and be as best I can, me, and do the best I can. Or I throw in the towel and be, and and was in, in the in the internet culture that we have, the number of people who are so fired up by the idea that I have the audacity to still live my life, and this is why I kind of why I ran in 2013 again after this. If you're an actor, if you're you know Tom Cruise and you have some crazy Scientology thing, or you you have a a messy divorce There's from some your wife, damage, yeah. whatever it is, you go do. You know, uh, Mission Impossible Five, and it's done. You basically you're out on your press tour. People are asking you about how you did that stunt. People pay, and they go see that movie. If you're Alex Rodriguez, you go play baseball, get a couple of home runs, one after another. You win a pennant. Your thing you? is done. In politics, you don't just say, "I'll be okay. I'll be the Secretary of Defense right. for a while." Like you don't do that because the path to get there is 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 really difficult. And so this notion of like getting back on the train. Everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people have the same thing. Well, you should go back and run for something again. You know, I had a nice run. I mean, I had a, you know, I served in the city council, as you said, in Congress. I, I, I did it for a while. It's not, and uh, but it's not easy just to kind of say, all right, let's put it behind you by what running for teaching? something again. I think I would like to do it. I am sensitive to the idea that the nature of my scandal might jam people up if they're like, oh, he's out, he's in the room with... You know, teaching you know, you know, teaching college students or something like that. So I've kind of not put people in the position of asking them to do that kind of in job. In the film, you talk about you went to therapy. Mm-hmm. What did that do for you? A lot of it is about getting in touch with this idea about what what motivates you, what animates you. And there's no doubt about a couple of things about me that we, that we just kind of touched on. It became obvious is that I'm very into the action, and I don't spend a lot of time thinking about what's animating the action because. And it and politics. Where's is, the fun in that? Po- yeah. Exactly, politics is the great job for that. You got a problem to fix? Just go fix the thing. You know, you're not spending a lot of time navel gazing about it. You just go fix the thing. But in emotional life and in a healthy person, you're thinking for a moment. You're taking deep breaths. You're understanding what's motivating you to do something. Like people would say after my scandal, I say, you know, why the hell did you do that? I mean, that was weird. Like you're having communications with people you haven't met and whatever it is. And I would have to say, in all honesty, I'm not really sure. It wasn't like I was like thinking it through and like, okay, this is going to be, it was me acting obviously in some, in a kind of impulsive way that was, that was wrong. 
so there was a little bit of that and also a little bit of like figuring out like what went wrong early on in my life that led me not to have that kind of wiring all that well done but none of it turns back the clock and none of it really changes all that much about it just kind of makes you more aware of did it help you stuff i think it did only in as much as maybe like understand a little bit about why i was doing stuff and make me a little bit understand what was animating me about stuff but you know Congress made me crazy too. I mean, not to not obviously. I don't blame the job, but right. I'm saying the idea that of a place that you're getting rewarded for being glib and good at arguing and and clever on your, and performing and clever on your feet and like being the guy who can summarize the Obamacare like a man on a hockey team almost. <laughs> exactly. Right? I'm like yeah. the like and so that kind of. Stuff and also the weird kind of feedback loop you get in Congress in the internet age is you can find 30,000 people who think that Michelle Bachman's a smart person. Right. Like you can find stuff. So you get reinforced even when it should be moments where you're like, hmm, that was not a good day. I should not have said that to that guy. Right. I shouldn't have shut down Megyn Kelly that way. I should have thought, been more thoughtful and more whatever it is. And then you, you know, in the internet world, it's like, my God, you're like, I love it when you go on Fox because you kick the shit out of them and everything else. That's so great. When maybe the things that animated me to go into politics and to be good at it, meaning wanting to win fights for people that were the under, kind of the underdogs, like being in there, like not backing down, not liking bullies, not that kind of, what made me a Democrat, it made me someone who was progressive, made me someone who liked arguing with people who I thought were wrong and who were in places of power when other people were, were proud. That type of kind of feistiness and battling, I think is probably the same wiring that doesn't leave you enough space to kind of think, all right, maybe everything isn't a fight. Maybe everything isn't a conflict. Maybe you should kind of get in touch with like some other emotion or not some other feeling. Um, but it does, like a warrior, like you like it when people say, yeah, we like that you're fighting and that kind of thing. And But then it became more and more of, well, I need more people to like that I'm fighting or like, what do you think about me fighting or this this type of stuff? I don't think it's particularly healthy, but it is, you know, it probably is the same things that drive me, that drove me to be good at some elements of my life, led me to be fucked up in other elements What of my are you life. doing now? Not a lot. I mean, you know, I've got a four and a half year old at home that... I kind of like the stillness of being the guy who's taking care of him and like that. I have he, some of that. Not, not yeah, a lot, I mean, but I it's some. like, it's funny. It's I, it's funny. I was very self-conscious about this idea of being a, you know, stay-at-home dad is a little bit of an exaggeration, but being a dad as a primary. More stay-at-home than normal. Right. Being a dad as kind of, that's my job. What's my job as dad? And with whom are being on the road as much as she is and, and my sense of obligation of like giving her some space to be able to do her things now that she sat unfortunately, and it helped me to do my things. I want to let her do hers, and she's got... That's the deal. She has stuff that they didn't resolve in 2008. You know, she came so close working on that campaign and wants to get this done, and to give her the sense that she can do whatever she needed, that Jordan was going to be okay. But there's another element to it. It's kind of like, why does my redemption as a politician, as a public figure, have to be as a public person and a politician? Why can't it be just doing this other important element of my life really well? Like, no one may see me being a dad... And it might not be something you can measure, like I get this number of votes or this number of people that wrote me positive letters or this number of times I was on hardball or something. But I know I'm really good at it and I'm doing it every day and and, and the like. You seem to me like someone who was at a place – you're at a level 
you're at a stage, and there are multiple stages, and I've been there. You're at, there's multiple stages, and even though our circumstances are different, there are multiple stages of recovery from these dynamics. And let's say it's eight stages, and you're at stage five. Oh, wait, let me finish. And you've got a couple more stages to go. And when you get to that stage, there's something you're going to do that you have to do. Who gives a fuck about whether there's college kids in the class? You should be teaching a class Maybe, in politics. I, I, guess I, I don't know. You're right. I, I think People that's, need that's to a hear very what you good, have to say. No, that's a very good way to look at it in that I'm still getting my footing. I mean, there's a lot of currents here, right? right. One is— Your the, wife's got the big thing going no, on. No, no, no. One just some my own personal thing. One is the world— looking through my thing through their own lens and right. deciding this disqualifies me for some other thing in besides politics. Like, I don't know what the hell. I don't want him to be on the board of Coca-Cola unless we want Coca-Cola associated with that guy. Or on the other hand, you know, a radio station that wants me to, to be a shock, uh, shock jock on their station because, yeah, this is great. We'll get a wiener, like whatever it is. So I'm still filtering what other people think, and then you and I can else. have a radio show together. Totally, I, I would, I would, I, I would love it. I, I love. I have a splitting headache every day. I love it. <laughs> the other thing is that um, it's a synopsis thing, right? Like my synopsis fired in a certain way for so long. Like I know politics, and I know governance, and I know the ladder, and I know how to do this, and I know how to climb, and whatever it is. I might not have been guaranteed success with or without my scandal, but I know it really well. And now I'm, I've got to redirect somewhere else midlife. I'm 51 years old, so I've got to, like, redirect to a different place. And that takes a little while to do. And then there's this third element of I'm so happy with Jordan and kind of like being at this peaceful place where I don't feel like I've got to go on and be, you yeah, know, put your, put your like pads on again. measure my life by how many I'm, press hits I'm, I'm, I'm doing that week. And it's figuring out. I think there's a happy medium. A quiet place where you go, hey, listen, you might not become the mayor of New York, but somebody who could become the mayor of New York could learn something from you that you passed. You could help make a mayor. Yeah, but, I firmly believe in that. But how do you do your you thing? You can pay it forward. But how do you do your thing? So you like, you've got the, the stuff that you're known for and the TV stuff that is in the movies, which you're amazing at, and, and I'm a big fan. You've got this, which scratches this itch that you're able to do. And then you have this, you have amazing family in this two-tiered sense that you've got the little ones, you've got the older ones and everything else. That's the kind of thing I want to try to find. Like maybe I still do a little bit of teaching people about politics and talking about politics. But I got to tell you something. If tomorrow I can call up the new owner of the Islanders and like help run their team because they're not doing a great job, I would do it. I would totally do it. Totally do it. And if I, if I, you know, I live in fear of Huma saying I want to move back to Washington and work for Hillary. Like I live in fear of that because I love New York City. If there's some way that I can contribute here somehow without actually being like that. In all likelihood, Hillary's going to win. Is that what she wants to see? Is she going to do Huma? I don't know. You know, it's funny. She is. Here's the strength. strength of Huma is that she's the vice chair of the campaign. She is constantly living in this planning mode that has to be by almost by definition seven, eight days ahead, thinking about media buys, thinking about state by state primaries and everything else in her own life. Having a conversation with her of like, what happens? You know, what, what if you win New York and then like, do we have time maybe to go to Disneyland with Jordan? And she, I can't. I can't think about. It. I can't think. About it. I can't. Right, right, right. So to have a conversation about January twentieth, two thousand seventeen, yeah, yeah. not even conceivable. Right, um, so all of that being said, I kind of like the what you. I kind of see you as kind of that kind of rhythm. I want to have like I, I want to figure out the kind of things that I like doing. I do like kibitzing about politics. But I don't want to go do split screen arguing with people no, again. No, and no. and I, I find much more pleasure in having people stop me on the street and I explain to them that what they just heard is 
bullshit and that it's that's not really and I am fascinated with this thing that everyone is trying to figure out, which is how younger people are consuming information about politics and governance and how to participate in that conversation in a way like fine like they're talking and they're doing so you go to reddit for example mm -hmm. and like this notion of apathy or the notion that these young people don't care we've left them to some degree in electoral politics but that doesn't mean that there's not still some way to find them and bernie is tapping into maybe something or so i'm fascinated with that as kind of a, almost an academic level like where is the new conversation about governance and politics going on and how do you find it and how do you inform it a little bit um and i do think that we're kind of getting close to an almost existential crisis in our democracy that the founding fathers did not think through. They were thought through about something happening too fast, did not think through this scenario where a relatively small number of people can stop anything from happening at all and how we kind of figure out a way to, to, to jerry-rig the system to fix that problem or to work around it. So these things interest me. Last but not least, what do you want your son to know that you know? What do you want your son to learn that you've learned? Well, I, the, I'm force-fed a tougher version of that question of like, well, what do you want Jordan to know about, about dad? Like, what, like, I don't care about that. What would you like to – what kind of man do you want Jordan to be? I guess I, you know, one of the things, if there's been a salutary – and there are several, but I look at the public maelstrom around people's foibles a lot differently than I did. You know, you, you – Develop an appreciation for people who are chewed up and spit out in this build-up, tear-down kind of thing. And it's given me, you know, I want someone to have, I want someone like Jordan to have this notion of perspective. Like, you know, there's bad stuff, there's not so bad stuff, there are complex people doing good and bad things and like... And the we're, we lose a little of that nuance. And I'm not saying that in defense of me so much as I say that now I view the world a lot more that way. Right. You're not like, who, you are not who you are on your worst day. That's not who I am. Right. No one should be defined by the shittiest thing they've ever, right. that, that they've ever done. Um, but I, and I think that we're in a world that in a weird way we have this, this cacophony of information going on. But everyone is tugging – to this absolute pure place. Like, we've lost this conversation. Nuance is lost. Like, it's almost, it's almost considered contemptible in political life, like, just have a nuanced, thoughtful position on something. And I guess I want him to be someone to, to grow up being someone that sees, that sees complexity, that sees that, you know, good stuff happens and bad stuff Humanity. happens. Humanity. And, like, see, the, and, and see, see that, that kind of stuff. And I... And not be so sure that you've got it right. Um, and that's kind of like those are the conversations I most like having when people are sure they've got something right. And I say, you know what? That's not really right. So in answer to your question, kind of to see complexity, see nuance, one of the reasons I love the city is that there's ways to do it. And hopefully I'll find some ways. I'm, I'm going to just finish with this one more time. Go ahead. I know you're going to ignore me because you're just a tough, you're a very thick-skulled no, no, I'm, guy. No, no, I'm ready. I wasn't aware that, I, that you, had, you had said something. I had to go ahead. Have I left something on? on no, no, on, no. I just, I just want to end with this by <laughs> Did I leave some open thing? No, no. You've been, you've been very gracious and you've been very, uh, you've been very open. Get back on the ice. Put your on the metaphorical on, ice? On the metaphorical ice. Because I'm on the literal both. ice. I know you're on the literal ice. Get back on the metaphorical ice. You know what I Somehow, all, someday. Here's the, the, in the future. I, I love you, brother, but let me. Just it's not. It's not I'm like I'm working so fucking hard. It's not like 
It's like, yeah, go so go out for run for something. By the way, I, no, uh, no, I didn't say run for something. I'll get back on. Get what, back on the ice in public life. What am I doing here? Right. I think that I'm doing what you said. I mean, I'm here. You know, when people ask me questions, I usually answer them. Right. I mean, I'm Hold not. Your head I'm up. not. What's done is done. Dude, my you is there anything? Have I have I said? I mean, you're doing this half of, you know, boy, this is kind of tough and everything else, and half hold your head up. I mean, you too are giving me conflicting messages. No, no, my my message is not conflicting. My message, well, I want you to get back out there and get into. But you're life. also asking me to do like reflection on a dark period of my life and that kind of stuff, and you know, like, well, I, well, I think that that's only normal because what, what I'm interested right. is in advance of you doing the one. I'm curious what your thoughts are on the other. Like when I, when I went through what I went through yeah, uh, yeah. In, in my life, oh. I, I did a lot of, I was curled up in a fetal position for months doing a lot of thinking. And it does change you. Yeah, well, that's the other thing that you realize pretty quickly when you've been through one of these things. Right. They're all the same. And no one gives a shit. Right. Like you think when you're in the middle of it. Now, when it's, you know, I mean, it all, with, with all due deference, your shit was nothing about I me. Mean, mine was like, you yeah, know, becoming exactly. like a ridiculous right. thing. Um, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't, look. I can't say stuff like other people can say. Like, I can't say I didn't murder anyone. I'm not, I didn't go to jail. I didn't. I, frankly, I, I think I did my job pretty well, even in the height of this thing and everything else. And that even when. It was impossible to stand up for yourself. Uh, well, but I just. Right. Because it's. it's I, I can't say those things. Other people have to judge those things. But all of that being said, it's true. I'm walking the streets. I'm not. I don't. You know, it's not. I'm I'm okay, and mm-hmm. other people are not okay, and I'm and I fully I I fully get that, and and I and I appreciate the opportunity to have have talks like this, and I'm trying to be as transparent about like you can't run for mayor after having a scandal and then suddenly say oh I'm not talking about that anymore. It's like mm-hmm. I'm a public person. Mm-hmm. It didn't work out, um, but I, I still get to be uh, be interviewed by the great Alec Baldwin. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap it up? I want to give you the last word. Uh, no. No, you, uh, you, 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 this is a, you're, this is a, a good. This is uncomfortable. This for is you? a solid B plus interview. What? We're done. I do know this much: Anthony Weiner will find his way back into public service. His brother Jason said, "Quote: No one has been harder on him than he has been on himself, and he believes that the scandals could make his brother a better politician." This is Alec Baldwin. And you're listening to Here's the Thing. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. 
For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.